Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, murder, and homophobia that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Jonathan Schmitz trembled as he picked up the phone. The 24-year-old took a moment to compose himself, then raised his hand to dial. He needed to talk to someone who understood what he was feeling, and he needed to let his family know what had happened. However, he couldn't help but be afraid of what they might say. They might laugh in his face, just like he assumed everyone else would be doing soon. He expected the worst. After another moment of hesitation, John gritted his teeth and rang his father, Alan. His voice shook as he told his dad that things hadn't worked out so well for him. The TV show he was hoping could turn his life around had done anything but. When Alan heard what his son had experienced, he erupted in fury. As far as he was concerned, John had just been insulted in the most personal and humiliating way possible. He screamed into the receiver, cursing every single member of staff on The Jenny Jones Show. But his greatest rage was reserved for John's friend, the one who'd called the show in the first place. Someone had to pay, and someone would. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we're discussing Jonathan Schmitz and Scott Amador. The two men were invited on The Jenny Jones Show in 1995, where one friend's shocking on-air confession led to murder. Next week, We'll talk about the sensationalized criminal and civil trials that followed. From the beginning, TV cameras captured nearly every moment of the story, turning real-life tragedy into a twisted blame game for public spectacle. We have all that and more coming up. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. 
Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Stay with us. Scott Amador grew up in a house full of love. The youngest of four boys, he was the baby of the family and never shy about standing out. According to his oldest brother, Frank, he enjoyed being the center of attention and making others smile. He seemed destined for the spotlight. When he grew up, Scott joined the U.S. Army, and at some point during his service, he told his family he was gay. While people were much less accepting during this time, Scott's brother Frank stated the confession didn't cause any friction. Scott's parents and siblings happily accepted him for who he was. Scott was able to be open about himself, and as a result, his self-confidence was infectious. He always knew how to light up a room. That kind of charisma made Scott the life of the party. Sometimes it only took him a single conversation to make a new connection. By 1995, the 32-year-old lived in Lake Orion, Michigan, and had polished his charm to a brilliant shine. Though his social circle was already large, Scott was always adding to it. One day, when he stopped by his brother's apartment complex for a visit, he spotted a friend, Donna Riley, working on her car outside. Helping her was a handsome man Scott had never seen before. That man was Jonathan Schmitz, a 24-year-old server at a local bar. He also lived in the complex and had become close with Donna. Scott was instantly drawn to John. He had close-cropped dark hair and dreamy eyes to match. So, Scott made his move. He lightly teased John about the peace sign he'd drawn on his own vehicle. He said he was surprised because John looked like anything but a hippie. John took it in stride, engaging with Scott. Scott was a bit of a handyman himself, so they quickly struck up a conversation about the car repair. By the end, Scott was enamored. Over time, the two became friends and grew to know each other well. But John was a very different person than Scott. He hadn't been raised to be open about who he was. Instead, his childhood was marked by strict discipline and intense punishment. His father, Alan, was reportedly abusive, and even he testified that he had no qualms about hitting his children when they stepped out of line. Once, when Alan found out a young John had skipped class, he forcibly dragged his son back to the school. There, in front of John's classmates, Alan took off his belt, grabbed John by the hair, and spanked him viciously. John carried the traumatic incident with him for decades. His father used public humiliation as a weapon, and his overbearing concern for the family's reputation put John constantly on guard. Alan was also deeply homophobic, and as John hit high school, 
Alan seemed particularly concerned with his son's sexual preferences. He made it clear that he would have considered it an embarrassment if John had been gay. John, as well as his close friends and family, always maintained that he has never been romantically involved with another man. That said, a couple of Scott Amador's friends claimed Scott had a romantic fling with John, but Donna Riley, who knew them both well, adamantly denied those rumors. However, John's preferences and individual experiences are less important than how he felt he was perceived. Though he publicly dated several women and was even engaged to a woman for several years, his family still questioned his sexuality. In the US, there is a public stigma attached to being gay, and it was even more prevalent in the 1980s and 90s. But John felt the stigma even more strongly because of his father. He knew there would be social consequences if his family had any reason to question his sexuality. Before I continue with John's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. Learning homophobia from a father figure can have disastrous long-term psychological effects. According to one 1985 study, this kind of homophobia can even limit a man's ability to form close friendships with other men. Another investigation, conducted 12 years later at the Forensic Mental Health Division in San Diego, came up with similar results. The authors of that study wrote, there was some indication that homophobia does relate to less intimate disclosure to other males. Thus, this study found some support for the idea that homophobia is an obstacle to intimacy for men. A difficulty opening up to other men would have made it unlikely for John to fully trust any man, much less one he knew to be gay. So the simple fact that he was becoming friends with Scott Amador may have caused some internal conflict for John. But if it did, Scott wasn't discouraged. No one described John as being openly homophobic and Scott didn't feel John was intolerant. In fact, the closer the two became, the more Scott fell for John. He wasn't sure whether John shared his feelings, but he didn't see the harm in taking a chance. As the months wore on, he steadily nurtured his crush, trying to find something that would get John to see him as a romantic option. One day in early 1995, 32-year-old Scott thought of a way to live his dreams. He'd always relished the limelight and wanted to make a grand gesture to impress John and win his heart. He could kill two birds with one stone by confessing his crush to the world on television. And in 1995, the easiest way for a regular person to get their moment in the sun was to go on a daytime talk show. At the time, there were more than a few to choose from. Some had started as more serious conventional shows, but quickly became exploitative and outrageous to compete in a saturated market. The most famous of these is probably The Jerry Springer Show, but it wasn't always known for taboo topics, scantily clad dance competitions, and intense onstage physical fights. In its first few years, 
Sprinker's show actually featured grave political interviews and investigative exposés. But because it aired in the middle of the day, it struggled to find an audience. People were used to tuning into the nightly news or Sunday morning punditry for that kind of serious content. They wanted to watch something more fun and turn their brains off for a bit during the weekdays. Fearing cancellation, Springer's format steadily shifted to highlight personal, controversial, and scandalous stories mined from its audience. The change was massively successful, eventually making the program legendary for its ridiculous, over-the-top stories, broadcasting salacious private gossip to every corner of the United States. The Jenny Jones Show, which started airing in late 1991, had a similar trajectory. Originally, Jones sought to replicate Oprah's success by featuring serious interviews and heartfelt stories. After a few years, however, her show faced the same dilemma Springer's had. Her ratings were plummeting. No one wanted to tune in to hear Jones discuss epidemics or interview sympathetic subjects. So she and her producers gave the people what they thought they wanted. By 1995, Jenny Jones's show was often compared to Jerry Springer's. She featured paternity test scandals, viewer talent competitions, and of course, plenty of romantic drama. That last element appealed most to Scott Amador. He loved daytime talk shows and often discussed the latest wild antics with his friends. So in early 1995, when the Jenny Jones show asked viewers to call in and confess their secret crushes, he thought it was his shot to have some fun and get on TV. Scott recruited Donna Riley to help him out. Donna wasn't sure whether John returned Scott's feelings, but she apparently thought there was a chance he did. And like Scott, she saw the opportunity as a fun, once-in-a-lifetime thrill ride. She happily agreed to serve as another guest on Jenny Jones. She would be playing the neutral friend role, the matchmaker in the background. Their plans would have shocked Jonathan Schmitz. When the Jenny Jones producers cold-called him in late February 1995, he didn't know what to think. One former producer testified that she told him he had a secret admirer and that the person might be a woman or a man. Few people could resist such a tantalizing mystery. John was intrigued, but also cautious because his most likely admirers might not have been much of a secret. Almost immediately, he suspected either Scott or Donna, perhaps because he knew they both enjoyed daytime TV, but John didn't have romantic feelings for either. On the initial call, John played it coy. He told the producer he couldn't give them an answer right away. He also said up front that if it was a man, he wouldn't want to do the show. In the margins of the production notes for the episode, someone jotted that down. The Ginny Jones Show never figured out who made that note, but reportedly, John was so adamant that a producer eventually assured him, or at least implied, his admirer was a woman. Not satisfied even with that, 
John went to see Donna and Scott to try and weasel some information out of them. He cautiously asked if either had any big plans coming up right around the time of the taping. But they were prepared. The secret was the whole point of the show. They couldn't come clean right away. They both lied and made up some other plans to cover their tracks. And whatever they said apparently satisfied John. With those two options eliminated, John let himself daydream. A few months earlier, he'd ended a years-long engagement with a woman. He told his restaurant co-workers he hoped his former fiancé had called the show to give him another chance. His second choice was actually another co-worker, a woman he felt a spark with. All the talk about John's hopes likely deflated Scott's own dreams a bit, but Scott was still excited. He held on to his belief that a public romantic confession might woo John and lead him to reconsider his feelings. Worst case scenario, he'd still get to be on TV. To Scott and Donna, the taping was an event, a fun story they could tell for the rest of their lives. Meanwhile, the more John thought about the opportunity, the more excited he became. He hadn't been feeling great since ending things with his fiance, but the cold call might have been a sign from the heavens. He wanted to believe he was on the verge of turning things around. He said that if his ex-fiance was the one who'd called Jenny Jones, he would definitely marry her this time. No more hesitation. Now was the time for courage. He decided to take the plunge. John called the producer back and accepted the offer. He'd be getting a free flight from Michigan to Chicago, but he didn't see it as a vacation. He spent several hundred dollars on some new clothes to look his best and hopped on a plane. The next phase of his life was about to begin. Coming up, a dream come true turns into a nightmare. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom, and then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows, others operate in plain sight, all are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In March 1995, 24-year-old Jonathan Schmitz flew from his home in Michigan to Chicago to be on The Jenny Jones Show. Unbeknownst to him, his secret admirer, 32-year-old Scott Amador, was also on his way to the set, along with their mutual friend, Donna Riley. Before the taping, Scott was nervous. He was looking to have a good time, but had genuine feelings for John and didn't want to put him in an awkward position. Jenny Jones and her producers, on the other hand, were more concerned with putting on a good show, which meant the confession had better be salacious. According to Scott's mother, Jones pressured Scott to give John flowers on stage or try to kiss him in front of the cameras. Scott refused on both counts. Meanwhile, Donna claimed a producer had encouraged them to have a few drinks to loosen up. They seemed to be doing anything they could to stir up conflict during the filming. Though the producer denied encouraging the drinking, the show did pay for Scott and Donna to open a tab at the hotel bar. When the day of the show, March 6, came around, John was taken backstage and given soundproof earphones. Meanwhile, Scott and Donna gave a short interview in front of a packed audience. Jenny Jones stood surrounded by the crowd, her bright yellow blazer and straw blonde hair stood out against the faux wood paneled set. With a huge smile plastered across her face, she gave the impression of the fun aunt at the family reunion. All around her were smiling faces in stadium seating, hungry for drama. Donna and Scott were crammed close together in small chairs on stage. From the beginning, the angle was obvious. Jones hyped up the fact that Scott was gay, but John's sexuality was still in question. When asked, Donna told Jones she wasn't sure if John would be interested, but she knew his family had questioned his sexuality before. Jones went further, pushing Scott to describe the sexual fantasies he'd had about John. Scott was clearly nervous, but gave a brief answer involving his backyard hammock and some whipped cream. The audience hooted and jeered. After getting Scott to describe John as a cute, tiny thing, Jones finally called John on stage. The moment John stepped out from behind the curtain, his confusion was obvious. In front of him were the two people who'd assured him they weren't his secret admirer. Still, he smiled for the crowd, came down and kissed Donna on the cheek. He then reached out to shake Scott's hand. Scott tried to pull John into a hug, which John resisted, resulting in an awkward one-armed embrace. It looked extremely uncomfortable. Afterward, John sat down next to Scott, wearing a smile that didn't reach his eyes. The first thing Jenny Jones asked John was whether he thought Donna was his secret admirer. John hesitated, then admitted he did not. 
he only considered Donna a friend. He'd hardly finished his sentence when Jones interrupted to drop what she clearly thought was the bombshell. Scott was the one with the crush. The glee in her voice was palpable. Clearly, this was intended to be the twist of the episode, intended to catch John off guard and win them a candid reaction. And the reason it was framed as a surprise worthy of daytime TV was because Scott was gay. When Jones revealed Scott was the secret admirer, the audience clapped, laughed, and shouted. And though John kept smiling, he didn't seem very happy. He turned to Scott and Donna and said they'd lied to him. His voice wasn't too serious. He had the tone of someone admonishing a naughty child. As the audience laughed again, he clapped a few times and sat back. He didn't exactly look comfortable, but his attitude was that of someone whose friends had just pulled a prank. He was trying to play along, even though he probably didn't want to. However, the show had just begun. Before Jones asked more questions, she played back some footage from the interview with Scott a few minutes earlier. John sat in the hot seat and watched the video of Scott describing his hammock fantasy. At that, John covered his face with his hands and composed himself, his plastered smile still intact. The reaction might not have been enough for Jones because she continued to play up the fantasy aspect even after John watched the footage. She told him Scott had a lot of fantasies about him and that he'd been having them since the two first met. The framing was more than a little exaggerated. Just a few minutes earlier, anyone could plainly see Scott was reluctant to discuss the topic, but Jones made it sound like it was his favorite thing to talk about. She then asked if John knew Scott had a crush on him and whether he felt the same way. John said he had no idea, but didn't have any romantic feelings for Scott. It wasn't a rude response, though John clearly felt the need to stress that he was, quote, heterosexual. It wasn't enough just to tell Scott he wasn't interested. He was clearly conscious of the fact that he was on television and couldn't bear the thought of any audience members or viewers watching at home questioning his sexuality. This might have been the first real sign that John's sense of self was bruised. When a person believes that someone is making a direct attack on their pride, they may experience a phenomenon known as threatened egoism. People with high self-esteem are at particular risk. When a man or woman with a large ego feels themselves being undermined, they might lash out. Some even turn to violence. But at that point, John kept his feelings under wraps. When he proclaimed that he was, quote, definitely heterosexual, the response from the Jenny Jones crowd was overwhelming. A massive round of applause, louder than any of their other reactions. It didn't seem to only be a show of support for someone in an awkward position. It sounded a lot more like approving applause. They were in favor of him being straight, and implicitly, that meant they weren't so much in favor of him being gay. 
Their claps seemed to make John a little more comfortable and perhaps soothed his aching ego. When Jones prodded him for more stories about Scott, he retold the story of their first meeting from his point of view. Jenny Jones didn't seem too engaged by his rendition. She started to ask again if John was sure he wasn't interested in Scott, then shifted her focus, asking Scott if he was disappointed by John's rejection. Scott claimed he wasn't really let down. He was never confident John liked him back. He just thought the whole thing was worth a shot. The interview ended after that, with video of the trio on stage smiling and clapping before cutting to a commercial. The very last image shown featured a golden background with some text splashed on top. It read, 3% of men report having sexual fantasies about their best friend of the same sex. That final card confirmed the angle of the episode. The show was focused on that specific 3% of men, and those in charge weren't concerned with those men pursuing relationships or falling in love. They only cared about their lurid sexual fantasies, especially if the people in question were infatuated with the best friend. But Scott, Donna, and John's stint on The Jenny Jones Show ended with a whimper. All in all, John didn't seem happy about his time in the spotlight, but he also didn't seem too upset. By all appearances, he treated the whole thing like a joke, he mingled with Scott and Donna after the show, then drove them home from the airport back in Michigan. The trio even stopped on the way to have a few drinks together at a place called Brewski's. Even then, John didn't give any outward indication he was angry. What happened next is murky. Most accounts agree that Scott, Donna, and John went home separately after having a few drinks. But years later, a different story emerged. One of the producers on The Jenny Jones Show, a man named Ron, claimed that Scott called him the day after the taping to report some tantalizing gossip. According to Ron, Scott said he and John had shared a private romantic moment after having a few drinks back home in Michigan. He told Ron that two of them had slow danced together and then shared a kiss. A second producer backed Ron up, testifying that while she hadn't overheard Scott herself, Ron told her about the call right after he and Scott hung up. This version of the story, however, is dubious. The producers never shared that information, which was clearly relevant with anyone until four years later. And when they did share it, they had reason to believe that dropping such a bomb could protect them from legal liability. Since then, no one else has ever corroborated this version of the account. It's more likely that the trio all went their separate ways after their drinks at Brewski's. Because while John didn't display any outward anger towards Scott, he was secretly fuming. He felt humiliated he claimed the producers had assured him his secret admirer was a woman, and that was the only reason he'd agreed to the show in the first place. He'd even convinced himself that his ex-fiancee might have been trying to patch things up. The bottom line, John had been tricked. 
Even if he knew Scott was sincere, he couldn't see past his own embarrassment. In his mind, he was the victim, and it didn't feel good. For a few hours after arriving back in Michigan, John stayed up late drinking with friends from work. At some point, he called his father, Alan, to explain what had happened. Alan was livid, fueling the fire burning in his son's belly. He didn't just curse the show. He was angry at Scott Amador, too. And the fact that Scott was gay was to him the major sticking point. Alan called Scott a homophobic slur and was apparently so upset by the call that he physically threw a chair. He didn't just escalate the situation. He made John's appearance on Jenny Jones seem like an embarrassment of apocalyptic proportions. He literally told his son that he should go out and kill Scott Amador to prove he wasn't gay. By the time the call was over, John was fuming. He needed to take drastic action. He would make Scott Amador pay. Coming up, John gives in to hate. Now, back to the story. On March 6, 1995, Scott Amador confessed he had a crush on his friend, 24-year-old Jonathan Schmitz, on the Jenny Jones daytime talk show. John felt homophobic embarrassment after the taping. Worried viewers or his family might think he was gay. John's father, Alan, only made things worse. He primed Scott to explode over the phone because of his own fragile ego. The real issue, which Alan later acknowledged, was that he was humiliated by the news. Perhaps even more than John, he couldn't stand the thought that someone might believe his son was gay. The next two days passed without incident. It doesn't seem like John spoke to Scott and Donna. He might have been trying to keep his distance and decompress. On the night of March 8th, he stayed the night at a female friend's house. The following morning, around 10 a.m., he returned to his apartment. Scott had left a flashing construction light he'd swiped from the airport on John's porch. Right next to it, impossible to miss, sat a handwritten note. It was unsigned, but read in part, you have the tool to turn this off. P.S. It takes a special tool. It's unclear why Scott wanted to give John a flashing light, but combined with the note, it was very likely his way of saying everything would blow over and asking for forgiveness. Even Donna claimed it was just a joke, and given Scott's lighthearted attitude toward the affair, that seems likely. But John didn't think it was funny. The note was the final straw. The homophobia John learned from his father made him feel humiliated, to him, being called gay was a direct insult to his manhood. So, he took drastic and disgusting measures to reclaim it. This connection between masculinity, heterosexuality, and violence is important. In a study entitled Boys and Violence, a Gender-Informed Analysis, researchers Fader, Levant, and Dean wrote, 
Masculine ideals such as the restriction of emotional expression and the pressure to conform to expectations of dominance and aggression may heighten the potential for boys to engage in general acts of violence. John falsely equated being gay with being less of a man. So now if he didn't respond like a man with overwhelming violence, then he thought he'd never be able to live his imagined humiliation down. There was only one thing he could do to prove once and for all who he was. Perhaps he believed in that moment that his appearance on the show would follow him for the rest of his life. Ironically, his next actions made sure it did. After reading Scott's note, John drove directly to the bank and took $300 out of his account. Then he headed to Tom's hardware store. He needed a special tool. John passed by rows of hammers, drills, and saws. He eventually found a clerk and bought a pack of 12-gauge shotgun shells from her. Next, he headed to Gary's gun shop, not too far from his apartment. There, he bought a gun to go with his ammunition. He told the shop owner he was going hunting with his father, then casually mentioned he was late for work and headed out. But John didn't plan on clocking in. Instead, he went back to his apartment and assembled his new shotgun in the parking lot. When he was done, he finally sat back and thought about his situation. The reality was that Scott hadn't done anything wrong. He had only intended to confess his feelings for John to see if he felt the same way. While John might have perceived the Jenny Jones surprise as unfair pressure, it was actually a romantic gesture Scott had worked hard to arrange. John knew Scott was his friend and had he been reasonable, it would have been easy for him to see the note was a joke. After all, it certainly wasn't a threat. And yet, John was sitting there in his car with a Mossberg shotgun across his lap and dark thoughts in his brain. It's impossible to know everything that went through his mind in those moments. Perhaps a small part of him cried out that he was about to do something unforgivable. But if it did, it was drowned out by the words of his father. John apparently decided there was nothing worse than humiliation. But John's point of view was as selfish as it was petty and homophobic. He hadn't been the only one in the hot seat that day. Scott was also needled by Jenny Jones. He was pressured by producers into revealing his sexual fantasies on television. And while John got a round of applause for telling the crowd he wasn't gay, Scott was portrayed as the loser. If anyone had a real reason to be upset, it was Scott. He'd not only been flat out rejected by his crush, he had put himself out there to be judged by potentially millions of people. And as a gay man, he likely knew that judgment would be unkind. Yet Scott handled the situation with grace. John might have believed he was being nice by going out with Scott and Donna for drinks after the show, but it's easy to see how Scott might have felt the same way. Perhaps he left the joke note for the same reason he stopped for a couple of drinks. 
He may have wanted to show John that the two of them could still be buddies and joke around together, even after his confession. Scott was a true friend. He couldn't have missed John's discomfort after the show and likely knew it was rooted in homophobia, but he didn't reject John or cut off all contact after it was clear things wouldn't work out romantically between them. He stuck around, perhaps because he thought he saw some good in John too. It's just a shame he was wrong. After a few minutes of quiet thought, seemingly only about himself, John strapped in and put the car in drive. Around 11 a.m., he arrived at Scott's gleaming white mobile home and parked in the driveway. He left his gun in the car and approached the thin white door. Bright pink crepe paper peeked out through its small window, a simple setup for privacy and a lightning rod for John's anger. John knocked hard. Scott answered quickly. He was in the living room and his roommate, Gary Brady, stood beside him. Gary listened as John asked Scott whether he'd left the provocative note outside his apartment. Scott told him he had. That seemed to be the answer John was looking for. He told Scott to give him a moment. He'd left his car on and needed to shut it off. Scott shrugged as John walked back down the driveway. This time, he came back with the shotgun. When Scott saw John carrying a weapon, he quickly tried to shut the door. He yelled for Gary to help, but John pushed into the trailer using the gun. Completely cornered, Scott picked up a nearby wicker chair to defend himself. It was no use. John fired twice, hitting him square in the chest. Scott Amador was dead. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of the talk show murder. We'll discuss John's arrest, the media craze it ignited, and the televised trials that made murder into a spectacle. For more information on Scott Amador and Jonathan Schmitz, amongst the many sources we used, we found the documentary series Trial by Media to be helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Carrie Murphy with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Terrell Wells with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. You aren't supposed to know about them, unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed, or world domination, 
Each week, we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.